Welcome to the Hopkins Biotech Podcast. This episode was recorded in September of 2022. Enjoy. Hello and welcome to the Hopkins Biotech Podcast Insights segment, where we investigate major topics that are shaping biotechnology today. For updates about upcoming guests, follow us on social media and visit us at hopkinsbiotechpodcast.com to check out our full catalog of episodes. I'm your host, Joe Varielli, and our guest today is Brian Culley. Brian is the CEO of Lineage Cell Therapeutics, a clinical stage biotech company whose mission is to pioneer a new branch of medicine based on transplanting specific cell types to patients with serious medical conditions. Prior to joining Lineage in 2018, Brian held a number of senior leadership and executive roles at various biotech companies, including Artemis Therapeutics and Mast Therapeutics. Brian has more than 25 years of business and scientific experience in the life sciences industry and started at the bench working in drug development research at Neurocrine Biosciences. He received a BS in biology from Boston College, a master's in biochemistry and molecular biology from the University of California at Santa Barbara, and an MBA from the Johnson School of Business at Cornell University. Brian, thanks for joining us today. Hey, Joe, it's my pleasure. Thanks for having me. So we were talking a bit before we started recording, but uh, commenting that often we we do have PhDs, MDs on the podcast. Uh, you come from a different background, and uh, you, you've really uh, risen to become a, a real leader in the biotech space, and specifically in the clinical stage biotech space. C- can you take us through your background a bit, uh, focusing on how you ended up in those senior leadership positions, and where your inspiration for science and, and interest in science arose? Yeah, I, I've always just been fascinated, like like many people, by the sciences. You know, as a kid, especially the life sciences, I was all about dinosaurs and planets and things like that. So, um, I became a biology major uh, as an undergraduate. Um, I was interested in medicine, but didn't want to be a doctor. I was interested in teaching, but didn't want to be a teacher. And my advisor said I was good at sociology. So she tried to take me down a totally different road. Um, but I ended up kind of landing almost by default uh, in research, bench research. And uh, I, I pursued that for a while. It was really fun learning about the molecular level of, of how cells and proteins uh, talk to each other and, and enrolled, but then uh, quit early a PhD program. Um, and partly because, although I was okay at the bench, um, it didn't necessarily offer the things that, that most interested me from my earliest days. So I set off on a journey that took about four years to move from bench research onto the the business side. So I went through uh, a period of time where I was working in technology licensing for UC San Diego, and I did some business development and and I I got that MBA. So it's been a really interesting journey, um, but I never did not want to be too far from science and and being the CEO of a of a, a drug therapeutic company you know you you are living in science every day even if you don't have a, a lab coat yeah and I think we'll we'll kind of weave throughout the interview uh, your experience in senior leadership at at these relevant positions um I, I want to ask you about your most recent position at at uh, Artemis and mast um, can you tell us a little bit about those experiences and um, how you've grown as a leader and, and how that plays into uh, how you lead at Lineage. Well, I became a CEO uh, fairly young. I was I was uh, lower, fewer than 40 years of age um, 
because I, I kind of stepped in in a strange way in a, in a company that was uh, was kind of broken and, and near bankruptcy. In fact, just a couple of weeks from implementing a, an entire plan of liquidation. Um, that company, after a few years, ended up uh, getting involved in sickle cell disease. And that was before it became, you know, quite as, as it's much more well understood uh, today. But, you know, 10, 15 years ago, there weren't so many companies working in sickle cell disease. I had the pleasure of running what has been history's largest largest ever clinical trial in sickle cell disease. It was 388 patients. Um, it was a phase three trial. Unfortunately, it was unsuccessful. We were, we were going head to head at the same time with Pfizer with a 350 patient study. Theirs also was unsuccessful. Um, so at, at, at MAST, I focused on sickle cell and at Artemis, I focused, focused on malaria. Um, but then I moved now more recently to Lineage where we work on cell therapy and cell transplant. And there's some interesting parallels, but uh, you know, each, each company and, and its, its management challenges is going to be unique. Yeah. And before we get into that science, the, the last question I had for you is in transitioning to lineage, um, how do you identify a company that you would like to lead? I'm sure you had many opportunities that you pursued or, or uh, people that pursued you to take on a leadership role. How do you identify a company with good science before you start working there uh, and and decide that you want to be at the helm of that that company and lead clinical development. Well, I think evaluating a company on its science is probably one of the most difficult things. If you if you think about a venture capital group trying to make investments in, in high caliber science and successful science, you know if they're correct one or two times out of ten, they're probably making some good returns. Well, that's a miserable slugging percentage, right? One or two out of ten. So I think it's really hard. You 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 actually, in many ways, um, and many people I interview, you want to think that you're picking good science, but we don't know. We don't know until we do the experiments, until we move the programs forward. So I think it's important to look at other characteristics. How can you contribute? Uh, what I saw was an organization that was ready for change, uh, a board of directors that was asking for new leadership and, and change. So I proposed a vision. They that vision and um, you know the science maybe we've been a little lucky along the way that, that some of the things that we have shown have have worked out pretty well um, but I you know I'm no better at predicting what what compound is going to be effective than anyone else probably much worse so it really is uh, it really is something you have to look at the totality of the environment you're going into how can I be successful there what am I looking to accomplish and not uh, not pin yourself so strongly to the success or failure of a single asset. And that's coming from a guy who, you know, had a failed phase three before getting this job. So you, you really need to be able to get beyond whether the, the the science or mother nature or whatever cooperates with you. Yeah. And I think it's really interesting from, from that perspective that, you know, and, and a lot of the companies that we interview that are sort of clinical stage, uh, some of the, these technologies that they're developing that, that you're forced to evaluate uh, weren't really present at all or, or weren't really feasible 10, 15, you know, some even five years ago, right? So you're always having to keep up. Um, thinking about that in the context of lineage, uh, you're trying to develop these allogeneic cell therapies. When I think of allogeneic cell therapy, and, and I think what the market thinks of is often these engineered cell therapies that we use for indications in the cancer, autoimmune space, um, and th those are common, right? Although allogeneic cell therapies are not yet approved, um, we have some autologous engineered cell therapies. Lineage is doing something a bit different in trying to transplant a specific cell type 
where that cell type is missing and and that is leading to this this disorder um can you explain how lineage is is different from conventional allogeneic cell therapies that we might think of yeah there there has you're correct there has been tremendous success in an oncology setting um in particular with with autologous approaches and and maybe we're going to see allogeneic uh, eventually dominate that space because off-the-shelf approaches uh, obviously have some very attractive uh, economics. You can you can manufacture a lot of them for, for more patients and get away from the you know one therapy per patient approach. Um, what we are trying to do is we are trying to move away from oncology and to pull the allogeneic cell therapy. Uh, success over into other areas. I, I actually prefer to call it cell transplant rather than cell therapy. And that's because what we're doing is much more similar to a bone marrow transplant, right? We're taking cells <clears throat> and replacing them where they're missing, whether it's part of your retina or your spinal cord, uh, auditory neurons. We have the ability to manufacture specific cell types at tremendous scale and then transplant them to the body to restore or recover the function that's lost due to you know aging or environmental factors. Yeah. So how do you get these uh, cell transplant um, medicines to mimic the regular physiology of whatever cell type you're trying to transplant? Is it uh, as simple as having the right process of differentiation that leads to that cell you know, assuming whatever role it's supposed to, or, or, you know, how complex is that whole process? Uh, it's incredibly complex, um, while at the same time, incredibly simple. <laughs> simple to describe because we begin with a pluripotent stem cell, uh, but we never put a stem cell into a human being. We simply take advantage of the fact that pluripotent cells can be reproduced without a Hayflick limit. So you can, you can create, you know, mountains of pluripotent stem cells, and then they go through the protocol of differentiation, the directed differentiation. So it's important to point out uh, that this is not a gene editing approach. We are following uh, nature's process, uh, natural developmental biological processes with different growth factors and conditions in order to convert an undifferentiated cell into only a population of differentiated and mature cells which you desire. Uh, in fact, we cannot detect residual pluripotent, i.e. stem cells, in our clinical materials. So we drive the differentiation all the way through, and then we are simply transplanting those functional differentiated cell types. And of course, they need to go through a battery of identity and functional tests to ensure that they are capable of performing the function. So real quick example, we don't just guess at manufacturing retina cells. We have to confirm that those RPE cells that we're manufacturing can polarize and they can phagocytose and they exhibit all of the expected surface markers for an RPE cell so that when they're transplanted in the body, they're able to take over the functions of the RPE cells that are dying off or which are no longer present. Yeah, that, that's really interesting. When I think of transplant, uh, something that comes to mind is rejection. H how in this approach do you avoid rejection and, and how do you ensure proper transplant without um, immune activity? 
Yeah, in the in the uh, in the present iterations, we're mostly focusing in compartments where you you don't have a lot of immune cells floating around. So we're in the eye, we're in the spinal cord, we're in the ear, um, but we do provide patients with immunosuppressive therapy both before and after treatment. Uh, in connection with our dry AMD program, patients are on uh, low dose uh, tacrolimus as well as Celsept. Um, we were able to reduce that from 12 months down to 90 days. We even had some patients who developed COVID, and so they take a holiday from the immune suppression. But we got it down to just 90 days, which is pretty well tolerated. I think it could probably go farther. We just haven't pushed the limits on it yet. And throughout this period, we have never seen a single case of rejection of our cells going out in the case of our ophthalmology program uh, at least two years, sometimes four or five years. And we recently published data from our our spinal cord program where patients have had cells present as long as 10 years, and we've never had a single case of rejection. So I think, uh, you know, a perioperative course of immune suppression seems to be sufficient to, uh, to tamper down any potential uh, rejection of the cells. Yeah, that, that's really um, hopeful. Uh, last question before we discuss more in depth some of these clinical programs that you're mentoring, mentioning. Um, generally, do you see this as being a one-shot cure for a lot of these disorders, specifically the ones related to neurodegeneration? I do, um, which is great because you've got cell therapy, but it's bringing the advantage of one-time dosing that we always think of with gene therapy. But of course, gene therapy is some ways similar to small molecules or antibodies, you're pretty much targeting one pathway. When you replace a cell, you're targeting all of the pathways simultaneously. That means you can be somewhat indifferent to what the causal, what the what the origin of the disease is. You don't have to segment your marker, your market. You don't have to screen a whole bunch of patients to find just that one person that has that one mutation that you can fix. So uh, we we imagine that it probably is possible to receive multiple core of our different cell therapies. However, to date, we have only treated patients one time and we have seen effects that have lasted, you know, five outwards of even 10 years. Yeah. And getting into your initial uh, clinical program in, in dry AMD, age-related macular degeneration uh, as a, a retinal disorder, can you describe a, a little bit um, that specific indication? Um, and, and can you tell us a bit more about uh, lineages uh, cell therapy in particular to treat dry AMD? Yeah, the, the retina, of course, you know, responsible for your visual, visual capabilities is about nine or 10 layers of, of uh, cells thick. One of those layers is called the RPE cell, uh, RPE layer, retinal pigment epithelial cell. Um, and we manufactured those cells. The problem with dry AMD or where it comes from is that sometimes those cells begin to die off. Uh, they may die off, die off for environmental factors. Uh, typically, you're outliving them. Most patients are in their 70s, 80s, even in their, in their 90s. Uh, and what happens is you may have a, a spot, uh, a very local spot where the RPE cells begin to die off. And that, that microenvironment becomes unfavorable to those cells and, and they expand. And it's a very slow process. It can take you know, a few years to go blind. It could take a decade or more to go blind. But it is a progressive disease that unidirectionally gets worse over time as you continue to outlive your RPE cells. 
So that spot, much like a wildfire, will expand roughly in all directions at once, and eventually it begins to affect your uh, your central vision. It hits your it hits your fovea, and, and you lose your central vision. Eventually, you can go entirely blind. And we've seen people go from you know, 20, 20, 20, 40 vision out to 2,800 in just a few years. So it is a problem because human beings lack the ability to regenerate their retinal tissue. So what we have seen and what no one else has shown with any other approach is that we have been able to deliver pure populations of RPE cells. They're healthy, functional RPE cells. And we've delivered them across the fovea. And what we have seen is that that, that peripheral area where the photoreceptors and the RPE cells are, they're unwell, they're, they're underperforming, but they haven't actually been destroyed yet. They actually can be rescued. We've been able to show with high-resolution optical coherence tomography imaging that we can see very normalized architecture of the retina in areas where we delivered our RPE cells. That effectively means that the area of damage has gotten smaller. That's incredible because it's you'll never see that on a placebo arm. You'll never see that in an untreated arm. So if you want to detect a clinical benefit and you've got a patient that is actually showing a regression in the size of their atrophy in a disease that otherwise only progresses, uh, yeah, it's really abundantly obvious. So it's really exciting clinical data. There's a clear need. What What's the current treatment regimen for dry AMD? Do, do people have options there? Well, um, if they don't eat vegetables and they smoke, um, those are two things that they could take care of. But uh, there's nothing been approved by FDA yet. Uh, I happen to believe that the reason for that is that every approach to date has really been focused on hitting a single pathway. No one's really tackled the, the total cell therapy, cell transplant approach. Um, it's a tremendously large opportunity. Um, the other form of AMD called wet AMD has uh, upwards of $10 billion of sales around the world, uh, but there's nothing approved for dry AMD. Um, they, uh, there are some leading approaches. Uh, they have recently, a couple of companies have reported phase three data. All they've been able to show is that they could stop, the, uh, excuse me, slow the progression by about 20%. Um, that's just not enough. The, there's been no effect on visual acuity. Uh, our approach has been able to, as I said, not only stop the progression, but we've been able to provide patients also with an increase in their visual acuity. So it's it's a pretty nice position relative to what's out there today. Yeah. Yeah. Talking about being better than, than standard of care, I think reversal is something to shoot for. Uh, so I understand that for this program, Lineage has partnered with Roche and Genentech uh, in an effort to, to commercialize this asset. Uh, that's going through clinical development. Can you tell us more about this partnership and and maybe what the role of partnerships at Lineage is in general? Yeah, it's pretty normal for smaller companies to partner with big pharma, um, especially when you have something special because uh, we need their capabilities, we need their expertise. We would never be able to fully enjoy the, the value of this program on our own. So we were fortunate that our data attracted uh, what I would consider to be the number one pharmaceutical company in the world in terms of ophthalmology. Uh, the deal that we struck with Roche and Genentech had a total, what's called BioBucks value of $670 million and had a $50 million upfront payment. And I certainly hope that we will enjoy collecting uh, double-digit royalties at some point in the future. 
Roche will take over the future development of the program. They will run and conduct the, the later stage clinical trials. We continue to manufacture the cells. That's our area of expertise, although we are going to attempt to teach them how to do it so that they can put it into one of their facilities and, and control that aspect of the program as well. So it's a very uh, typical small company, big pharma alliance. What's different about it, perhaps, is that to our knowledge, it was the largest cell therapy alliance that was ever done outside of oncology. Um, they won't stay that way forever. You know, uh, this is an area, a field that is exploding. People are really interested in allogeneic cell transplants. Um, we've seen some companies get acquired for nearly a billion dollars uh, over the last few years. So there's a lot of activity, but for us, at least it was a high water mark and it brings so much capability to this program and increases the probability of success. And that's an important driver far beyond the money that came in the door in a bad biotech environment uh, is the ability to continue to advance the program in the best possible way under the leadership of, of Roche and Genentech. Yeah. So, you know, being the front runner is not always the worst thing. Um, you have other partnered programs at Lineage. Can you tell us a bit more about those? Yeah, the um, spinal cord program where we manufacture replacement oligodendrocyte progenitor cells to treat spinal cord injury and help people regain recovery. Um, we have had an alliance with the California Institute for Regenerative Medicine for many years, and uh, they have uh, supported us with $14 million of development capital. So they're not a traditional commercial co corporate partner. We, we still may in the future want to seek out and enter into a traditional corporate partnership. But in terms of development and uh, reducing the development costs, our partnership with CIRM has been very meaningful. And then we also have the ability to manufacture dendritic cells and load them with tumor antigens. Um, that program has actually been partnered with Cancer Research UK, who ran a phase one clinical trial in eight patients in non-small cell lung cancer. So, um, you know, sometimes the value that we get is through grants. Sometimes it's in-kind services. Sometimes it's, sometimes it's regular way corporate uh, partnerships. Uh, you know, we're open to anything that'll keep our programs moving forward in, in good hands and, and create value for our shareholders along the way of course it's a busy business development team what how, do, how does <laughs> the people. company yeah, sorry go ahead <laughs> two people <laughs> two people um so you operate in in you know a lot of these high unmet need indications but but relatively niche in terms of um their exposure to cell therapy going forward how, how are you deciding what indications to actually pursue uh, that's an excellent and really fun question because your body, my body, we're made up of about 200 different cell types. So that's 200 different programs you could choose from. So the way that we did this, in particular, when we entered into the Roche agreement, all of a sudden there was a $50 million you know, wire that hit the account. You go, well, how am I going to reinvest this? How am I going to repeat this success? Uh, so we went through a, an exhaustive process looking at all sorts of different cell types that we might go after. And we uh, basically profiled them against different attributes. So what's the addressable market? What's the competitive landscape? How hard is it to make the cells? What's our probability of success? How many cells? Do I need 300 million NK cells? Do I need 10,000 auditory neurons? Uh, all of the different parameters. Um, so for you know the, the future management consultants and strategic consultants of the world, this is such a fun exercise. You get to kind of play venture capitalist. When we go through that exercise and we create this enormous heat map, sometimes the 
answer just kind of steps off the page and is pretty clear. And auditory neurons was one of those cases. There's very little happening. There's a huge unmet need. People haven't gotten that far with delivering cells yet. There's nothing approved. It's not a huge number of cells. That was really attractive. You know, for other reasons, we've gone into photoreceptors. Uh, photoreceptors obviously takes advantage of our expertise in the eye. It's a very difficult cell type to make. You've got rods and cones there. So there are a lot of different factors that go into that decision. Um, but longer term, that's nice because you've got this punch list. You've already gone through and said, well, where could I go next? And we can even sort of hang out a, a, you know, a, a, a shingle and say, hey, would someone like to work on this cell type or that cell type? You want to do uh, dopamine? neurons with us, great, you know, bring the capital, we'll bring the expertise and there's a new project. So it's a really exciting to be able to go through that exercise and figure out what kind of cells to make and, and how quickly to get them into animal models, not a models any good. It's, it's the best part of, of this job for sure. Yeah. How, how from, from the top, how, how do you encourage that sort of uh, culture of, of learning? And I, I'm sure all of this requires a lot of digging into, uh, you know, different uh, fields of academic literature, how do you try to build that culture as the CEO? I think it's, I, I think one's decision-making is best when you are able to, to help folks kind of look across individual departments. I mean, the way that you would develop a product, if you were focused, I'm going to say solely on the return on capital or solely on the impact to the patient, you know, oftentimes you can go down roads that are not going to be successful and productive. You have to integrate them. I often say to the team, we can only do what we can fund. So we have to have programs that are attractive to investors. Otherwise, they're they're essentially academic programs to us. They're they're not going to be as capable of moving as quickly and so forth. That's all about balance. It's really important, I think, in, in my job, the job of the CEO, to be able to understand in fairly, you know, in a fairly de detailed and sophisticated way, what are the moving pieces in, in clinical and regulatory and quality? And you have to integrate them all together. It is too much to ask for every person in the company to have that sort of uh, holistic view, but integrating them, getting them communicating so that you avoid, for example, someone in clinical saying, well, don't don't give me pressure to enroll because I know that the manufacturing folks don't have any material. And someone in manufacturing says, hey, why, why are you complaining about my production? Like you don't have any patients on the clinical trial, right? They're enabling each other to fail. So, um, you know, it's, it's important to be able to look across disciplines so that you can get in front of those issues. Yeah. Yeah. And, and really be the catalyst. So to to close out, I'm, I'm wondering if you could tell us a bit about what are some of the near-term milestones for Lineage and what should we be looking out for in, in the next few months to a year? Well, in thinking about forward-looking statements, I'll remind everyone that um, you know they can always refer to our risk factors on the files on uh, sec.gov to, to learn more. Uh, with that said, I would say that something really important will be the initiation of the next clinical trial by Roche and Genentech. Um, it's going to be really exciting when people see what, um, what they're planning to do with the program, and they'll be able to get a sense for when data will be available, um, because the evidence and the proof when it's done in pharma's hands versus 
small biotech is always you know compelling i think to to a broader audience uh, we also have a number of fda interactions for both our spinal cord program and for our uh our dendritic cell vaccine program as well as getting our auditory neuron program into animals um, it seems like it wouldn't be a big deal moving from from you know cell-based assays into animals but that's a program that didn't exist a year ago. So if I wanted to do that with a small molecule, I've got to identify a target, I got to validate it, I got to screen millions of compounds, structure activity relationship, hits to leads and so on. It would take years to get into animals, but we can go back to that heat map I described. We can pick uh, a cell type. It's already been validated by a hundred thousand years of evolution, what you need to do. And I know with a hundred percent certainty that a pluripotent cell has the ability to become that other cell type. So our job then becomes limited to figuring out the recipe. And so if we can do that quickly, we can move into animals. So it's really efficient. Uh, I mean, I can launch a new program, get into animals with less than a million dollars. So there are a lot of things that are coming for us in the near term, but overall, you know, just finding a good pace of progress and expanding this field of medicine is something that, that we're really trying to accomplish here at Lineage. We're excited to see what the future holds. Thank you, Brian, for coming on to uh, talk about your interesting journey through leadership and uh, a, a lot of these interesting programs that that lineage is pursuing. Thanks, Joe. It's been my pleasure. Thank you for joining us. Don't forget to follow Hopkins Biotech Podcast on social media at Facebook, Instagram, LinkedIn, or Twitter for updates about upcoming guests. And visit us at hopkinsbiotechpodcast.com to check out our full catalog of episodes. I'm Joe Varielli. Thank you for listening. Thank you.